So here on the shrine, we have this beautiful artist's impression of Mahapajapati, the adoptive mother and aunt of the Buddha, as an old enlightened nun. I was looking at this a little earlier, something about the eyes, very open and relaxed. So in this picture she's a she's an old woman who's been through a long life and is uh, fully fully realized fully free. So I wanted to share her poem with you tonight and speak a little bit about the teaching that is held in that poem. So I'm going to read two translations. One is by Susan Murcott who uh, who put together the first Buddhist women. Let's see when that was. Uh, copyright 1991. And the other is by Charles Hallisay, who we've been reading from quite a bit. So I'm going to read Susan Murcott's translation first and then Charles Hallisay. And this is uh, Mahapajapati's Enlightenment poem. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the blessed one. This is my last body. I will go I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at the disciples altogether, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. Halisay's translation. Praise to you, hero among Buddhas, best of all beings. You freed me from suffering, just as you did so many other people. All suffering is known. The craving that is suffering's cause has been destroyed. The eightfold path of the noble ones has been travelled and cessation reached. The four noble truths, each one done, all done by me. I had already been a mother, a son, a father, a brother, and a grandmother, but not knowing things as they really are, I was reborn and reborn, never having enough. As soon as I saw the Bhagavan, the Blessed One, 
I knew that this is my last body, that the realm of births is finished, that now there is no more rebirth for me. When I look at the disciples assembled together, energetic, resolute, always making an effort, I see that this is how the Buddhas are rightly worshipped. Mahamaya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of many, to drive away the mass of suffering of all those struck down by sickness and death. So, so Mahapajapati is a, you know, a powerful figure in the in the in the history of, of Buddhism actually and in the in the life of the Buddha himself and in the the uh, Terigata she's our our uh, lineage founder so the Buddha obviously is the is the one who um, first turned the wheel of Dhamma, who realized full awakening. And Mahapajapati is the one for us, she's like our um, you know, the, our ancestral lineage, you could say, spiritual ancestral lineage, as, a, as bhikkhunis go, goes back to her. She got the whole thing started uh, in terms of women having an opportunity to go forth. And uh, she was a, a powerful woman in her life before she was a nun, as a as a, um, as a leader in her community. And she was a powerful leader as a as a nun also, leading many many women to take full ordination and to be able to go forth and practice which was not, uh, it wasn't unheard of in the Buddha's time. The Jains also had women who were renunciants. But it was uh, quite a radical thing for women to be able to do that. Uh, it was more kind of normal in society for men to, to be able to go forth and uh, live as renunciants and, and much less so for women. So she was a powerful woman and she had a powerful practice and realized full awakening. Um, and there are stories of uh, uh, towards the end of her life where she would, she, where apparently the, the Buddha asked her to show people her the powers that she had developed. So this is very unusual. It doesn't usually, they usually come across this anywhere in the suttas, but there is a, story of her being asked by the Buddha before she dies to show her powers, so her psychic powers. Um, so psychic powers aren't necessarily um, signs of awakening, but she was a fully awakened being who also had these, these abilities that you know, she kind of had kept quiet as, as uh, we are, you know, monastics are instructed to, to do if in case anyone happens to have them. And uh, so she gave this quite remarkable display of her powers before she passed away. And uh, so she was a, a, a great being, really, Mahabhajapati, through, throughout her life. 
and you know, reflecting on the story you know, of the Buddha, little Bodhisattva before he was a Buddha, being there in, the, in his mother's womb, Mahamaya, who was the sister of Pajapati, um, and being born, uh, as, as we've heard in other stories, being born as she was traveling back to her, so as, as um, Mahamaya was traveling back to her mother's home for her original homeland, she didn't make it all the way there. She was going there to give birth, but she didn't manage to get all the way there. And in Lumbini, she gave birth under a flowering tree to the little Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, and, uh, and then made her way with her entourage back home to uh, where she would normally live. And it's said that seven days, so that's in, in the suttas, numbers are sort of general, so it just means, doesn't mean literally seven, but very soon after she gave birth, she died. So the, the Buddha experienced this trauma, you know, at, at, this, at this very tender early age. And then his, uh, um, sorry, and then Mahamaya's sister, Pajapati, who's known as Maha Pajapati, stepped in as the adoptive mother of this little baby. So I, I find that also an, an interesting phenomena, I suppose, that the, this little baby experienced the loss of his mother at such an early age, and then for sure his father and his aunt, his mother's sister, would have been grieving. So he would have touched, even as just a little tiny baby, he would have touched into the dukkha, the, the suffering of the world. They would have, that would have it affects one. You, know, you can't not be touched by that, even as a tiny baby. So uh, I think that's part of what helps us to wake up when we are touched by these painful truths of the limitations of this realm. So he would have had that uh, as a very little baby. And um, so Pajapati... You know, raised this little boy as her own, and, and she also had her own children. And it said when the Buddha was 29, around that age, he left left the, the wonderful life that he had, the very opulent uh, life of you know, entertainment and learning and all of the things that anyone could wish for and went on a six-year search for freedom and eventually became enlightened. And after his enlightenment, he came back to his birth town and was uh, not very warmly received by his father or his wife who he had left. But his mother, apparently, uh, sorry, his adoptive mother was warm towards him and and, uh, received him back. And uh, some time later, maybe it maybe like seems like a maybe six or seven years or so after the Buddha has was enlightened and was teaching, and all of these men were, you know, receiving the teachings and going forth, ordaining and becoming fully enlightened. You know, this seems to be quite a lot of that going on. 
Many of them were, many of these people have been practicing actually for a long time already. So there were a lot of practitioners in India at that time who had high levels of concentration, access to the jhanas, or who had a very strong renunciation. So there were a lot of practitioners, but they, they didn't have the, the key, the, the, the last kind of little twist or little understanding that the Buddha had, which was the understanding of anatta, not self. So when the Buddha gave these teachings, many of these people were really ripe and then they got it with his, with his extra insight. Um, so this was going on and, and um, many people were leaving the, the sort of clan that Pajapati and Gautama, the Buddha, was, were part of. So many men were leaving that clan and uh, going forth. And there was also a, a war between that clan and the neighboring clan. And in that war, many people, many of the men were killed. You know, they died, killed each other, how, they, how people do. And those wars have been going on since who knows when and are still going on now. So many of these women were bereft of their husbands, sons, brothers. And it seems that many came to Pajapati, Mahapajapati, as you know, she was like a leader of, of, the, of the clan, a, fem- a, matri- a, fem- a female leader of the clan, and um, gathered around her and, and uh, you know, all sorts of women. So I hope you can read it actually because it's quite beautiful the way Susan Mercott wrote. If you give me a moment. This is, uh, this is Susan Mercott's writing about this experience, this time. One by one, or in groups, women sought Pajapati's support, advice and direction. These women appealed to her not merely because of her high status. She shared with them after her husband died. She may have... Uh, sorry, I'll just skip that. Following the Buddha's return to Kapilavatu, Pajapati's son Nanda and her grand-nephew Rahula had both become monks. Not long after this, Sudodana died. Uh, this left Pajapati... This, this was, uh, the, Sudodana was the Buddha's father and Pajapati's husband. This left Pajapati without the web of family connections that gave every woman in that society her identity and security. The majority of the... sorry, We find this supposition confirmed when we review the poems of this chapter. The majority of the authors are women formerly of Siddhartha Gautama's harem, women who lost their sense of identity when their primary patron set out on his spiritual journey. And then she speaks about the war 
with the neighbouring Kolians. Altogether, the number of women who had come to to Pajapati by this time totaled 500, a number frequently used to mean a great many. No doubt some came simply for comfort and support. Others came to resolve ultimate questions of birth, suffering and death. Yet others sought a new family with women they trusted and with whom they shared a common experience. The longing of these women, whatever form it took, became their spiritual aspiration. All would have a personal story, most of which are now lost, and a particular experience of what the Buddha called the first noble truth. This is what motivated them to join with Pajapati in the new and radical way she was about to suggest. So the new and radical way she was about to suggest was that they gather and they request that they can also go forth, as the men are. And uh, we have two slightly different stories of this. So in the Pali canon that we have the easiest access to, the story goes that um, you know, the, the Buddha comes back to Kapilavatu and she asks on behalf of these 500 women you know, for women to go forth to also be able to live the renunciant life and uh, in the Pali Canon he gives her a flat no three times and you may know in, in Buddhism you know, you, like you can ask three times and the first time you might say no and the second time you say no but the third time it's like, oh, okay then, yes. You know, it's often that way. You have to knock three times. And, but if it's three times no, then that's, that's, that's a closed door. So, uh, so in the Pali Canon we have this story that, that the Buddha gives a flat no three times. And then, somewhat oddly, um, Mahapajapati shaves her head, puts on a robe, even though he said no, uh, and encourages all the other women to do the same. It doesn't quite add up. And they all walk 150, uh, like something around 150 miles to where the Buddha has moved on and ask again. So this is what we, we get in the Pali Canon. And in the Agamas, which are the, uh, the Chinese parallel uh, that were written down at a similar time to the, to the um, Pali Canon, so, they, so Buddhism traveled from India to Sri Lanka and from Sri Lanka to China and uh, it was an oral transmission for, for hundreds of years and then at a similarish time it was written down in Sri Lanka and in China. So um, uh, in his very excellent book uh, found The Foundational History of the Nuns Order Venerable Analio does this uh, comparative study of these different texts and what comes out is that in the Pali Canon there's one sentence missing that you find in the Chinese parallels. And that sentence is, so instead of the flat no, it's, it's the Buddha says, shave your head, wear the saffron robe, stay at home and meditate, practice, and then you will receive the fruits for which one goes forth. And then again, Mahapajapati asked, no, we, we would like to wander, you know, we want to be able to do what the guys do, you know. And again, he says, shave your head, wear the saffron robe, 
stay at home, meditate, and then you will receive the fruit. So this is apparently three times there's this conversation. And uh, so to me that makes more sense why all of these women are shaving their head and wearing the robes despite the fact that the Buddha has said no. So it's like, it seems like he didn't actually say flat no, but there was a concern about women wandering, women being out, you know, vulnerable, uh, particularly in that, that social context where a woman is the property of, of a man. A man owns essentially a woman. So women who are not who don't belong to a man, are very vulnerable, would have been very vulnerable. So to me that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so then the, she leads these 500 women, many women, to uh, Vaishali, and where the Buddha is staying and teaching with his monks, and again asks at the door, goes to the door of the house where the Buddha's staying and again asks for going forth and again is turned down. Uh, and it's, it seems like, you know, she's proving, she's saying, look, we can do it, we're doing it. You know, we did this walk, we were safe. And, uh, but again, the Buddha says no. And then finally, uh, we don't really know that which story is right, but finally he does agree to for women to be able to wander in the way that uh, the monks also do. And uh, the beginning of the nun's order, the bhikkhuni order, starts with this, uh, this leadership and this clarity and this strength, really, and, and working together. And, uh, and these women, you know, many, many women, or go forth, and many of them gain deep insight. So in Mahapajapati's poem, she particularly speaks about the the Four Noble Truths. And uh, so she says, all suffering is known. The craving that is suffering's cause has been destroyed. The eightfold path of the Noble Ones has been traveled and cessation reached. The four noble truths, each one done, all done by me. So these four noble truths are these are the this is the insight, this is the, the this very profound insight that the Buddha had that had not been seen before, not been understood before. And uh, and they are very counterintuitive. And probably many, many times in a day, we do the opposite to the, we go in the opposite direction to the way that they are pointing us. So the Four Noble Truths, first of all, the word dukkha. Uh, dukkha means, I like to, I'd like to stay with the word dukkha rather than suffering, because the translation suffering is one extreme, and, and, uh, we know, you know, many of us know what that's, we know suffering, we've experienced suffering, but dukkha is much broader than that. So it's basically being out of alignment with reality, essentially. So it can be just a little, a little like, oh, if only, 
if only it was a little bit warmer, cooler, lighter, darker. So it can be from that to out and out intense suffering and everything in between. Uh, So the Buddha gives this this beautiful teaching of there is dukkha. So the the first assertion, there is dukkha. So he's, he's telling it like it is, you know, there is dukkha. When I first heard that teaching, it was so powerful for me. It changed my life. I was 14, reading a book, and I was like, whoa, the Buddha's acknowledging it. It's, it's the first person I've ever met, heard, not met, ever, ever come across. <laughs> first time I've ever heard anyone say that, you know, there is dukkha. I was so touched by that compassion to acknowledge it. And then he says there is a cause, the cause of dukkha, and the cause of dukkha is clinging. And another word for that could be identification. Uh, and, uh, and there is the cessation of dukkha, and the cessation of dukkha comes through letting go. And there is the path that leads to the ending of dukkha, and that is the Noble Eightfold Path. And this is a path of aligning uh, one's body, speech, and mind. In a way, one's mind, speech, and body with, uh, with truth. So it's... Uh, it's understanding that everything is in a state of flux. Everything is changing all the time. So it's, it's a, it's, you know, when, when our mind is aligned with that, when our heart and mind are aligned with the truth of change, there's a, we're, not, uh, we're not trying to fix the future. We're not trying to hold on to the present. We're not wrestling with the past. We're open, curious, attentive. And the mind becomes bright through aligning with with the, the, this present, ever-changing experience that we are in all the time. We're in it all the time, and then we make, we create these stories that make things solid and real, and we put names to things and call things. You know, we call we have nouns that make things into. Things, so the bell is a thing. Whereas the bell is a process, look. There's nothing fixed about that. That's a process. So, um, this noble truth of dukkha and the the way that leads to the ending of dukkha these uh, these teachings are are pointing to how we get caught how we end up suffering in through through creating process as through turning a process into something fixed and often the the fixed thing we turn a process into is we don't even want it in the first place. So, I don't know about you, but I notice how, you know, maybe I maybe get a, maybe I say something a bit 
foolish and then I feel awkward about it and I feel embarrassed and then then there's this feeling inside that it's like feels really unpleasant and and then there's a whole story on that you can build a whole story on it oh I'm always like this I've never been like that and it's always going to be and it never will be and we can create a whole story on a on a feeling that's going on for a little while inside we can do you know people people kill each other over over a feeling inside and or themselves you know so we it can go to that extreme and this is like holding on to something that is ephemeral changing so the the four noble truths are pointing us back to the the ephemeral nature of all things and that holding on to what is changing is dukkha it can't help but be dukkha so the noble eightfold path um, I like to see it as a it's like in the beginning when we first start practicing with the noble eightfold path it's it's like it takes we have to learn it and it takes an effort and we're doing it and uh, we're having to kind of try and change the our bad habits and on all of this and then over time it gets more natural and eventually one doesn't have to do anything it's 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 uh, because the 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 eightfold path is pointing to truth so it's like aligned with reality so as long as we're still caught in that story of me and mine and uh, becoming and wanting to get rid of and holding to views all of that stuff as long as we're still very caught in that and identified with that there'll be a lot of dukkha and the more we're able to understand that letting go uh, releasing the grip allowing the process trusting nature you could say all of that the more we trust that then the more freedom we experience and it feels scary because we think no i've got to be in the driver's seat i've got to be i've got to keep everything under control if i don't keep everything under control it's all going to go crazy it seems that way but uh, it's and it does take this act of faith to turn towards this presently arisen state that's going on now and, and changing all the all the time so the buddha listed these uh, these ways that that dukkha can arise so he's saying birth is dukkha you feel like oh come on birth you know it's, it's a beautiful little baby it's lovely and it's true there is there is a lot of loveliness to birth to beginnings it is it is in the spring you know new buds coming and it's it's beautiful and it's not like it's not to say the beautiful new leaves on the trees are are, are bad or dukkha or a newborn baby is a terrible thing but it's just that saying that everything that starts goes through a process and then ends this is the way of things 
So the dukkha is that that wonderful beginning, that lovely start, is just there for a little while and then it's gone. So that's the dukkha of birth. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Many of you know that directly. And death is dukkha. And uh, and then the, the, the painful feelings that we have, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, despair, all of these feelings that can come up in a, in a different times in our lives, these are dukkha. We know that. We know that they're dukkha. So the Buddha's just saying, no, this is dukkha. Uh, not getting what we want is dukkha. Having to be with what we don't want is dukkha. Having to be in close proximity with, with somebody we don't like or with a difficult situation, this is dukkha. Um, not getting, not attaining our wishes, you know, not getting exactly what we want is dukkha. We, feel, we can feel that. And but it's only dukkha if we're grasping, if we're grasping, if we want, if we feel like, no, this is me and this is mine and I need and I want and I don't want. This is where the dukkha lies. It's in, the, it's in, the, it's in that clinging identification. So these qualities of, uh, well, first of all, aligning one's mind with the, with the changing nature of things as best we can. And we can experience that in daily life and we can experience it much more profoundly in when we when we allow the mind to still and settle we can see the changing nature of things so much better when we let things settle and uh, you know practicing generosity letting go generosity is a beautiful way of letting go Practicing generosity. Um, the Brahma Viharas that we were talking about earlier on, t- uh, teaching about cultivating these qualities, they all support letting go of this small story of me and mine. And as we keep working on that, and we keep letting go, gradually there's greater freedom. Gradually we see the dukkha. We can't necessarily stop it happening at first, you know, we, but we can be with it and see it and recognize it and some, somehow trace it back. Where did this come from? So whenever there is dukkha, there is always grasping somewhere in the background. There's always wanting or not wanting. So we can trace that back. We can't always catch how it happens, but we can, you know, if any at any time when we're feeling a lot of a lot of turmoil or or um, upset or uh, fear or tightness or you know self aversion or whatever it might be, trace that back. Just and it always comes back to some holding some idea, some story of that things should be other than how they are. It always comes back to some grasping. And uh, if we can find that and let it go, and then let it go and let it go and let it go, 
there's freedom, there's peace, there's joy. And it seems like, you know, if we, if we get away from the unpleasant thing, then we'll be happy. Let's just get away from the, you know, the, the difficult situation or that person who's been driving me nuts for years or whatever it is. You know, if, I, if only I could just get away from them, everything would be fine. But no, the, the work is inside. It's, it's here inside our own hearts. And when we do that, you know, as, as, we, as we work on that and as we find gradually that freedom, then we're, we don't have to keep controlling the outside world all the time. We've, we've, we're strong, we're clear, we're centered. So uh, those Four Noble Truths are to be to be realized for each of us and fortunately you know it's like it starts with dukkha so it's kind of accessible <laughs> <laughs> so we can all do this you know whenever the, and whenever dukkha arises we get interested in it what's going on where's that come from i really if only that person wouldn't keep doing that you know Okay, and then and then we can we bring our attention from that outside to the inside, and and f- and really get interested, follow it back, see where it begins, and we may find there's a place of letting go. There's a, the freedom is found here, in one's own heart. So I want to read that poem one more time, Halasay's poem, Halasay's, sorry, Mahapajapati's poem, Halasay's translation. Praise to you, hero among Buddhas, best of all beings. You freed me from suffering, just as you did so many other people. All suffering is known. The craving that is suffering's cause has been destroyed. The eightfold path of the noble ones has been travelled and cessation reached. The four noble truths, each one done, all done by me. I had already been a mother, a son, a father, a brother and a grandmother. But not knowing things as they really are, I was reborn and reborn, never having enough. As soon as I saw the Bhagavan, the Blessed One, I knew that this is my last body, that the realm of births is finished, that now there is no rebirth for me. When I look at the disciples assembled together, energetic, resolute, always making an effort, I see that this is how Buddhas are rightly worshipped. Mahamaya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of many, to drive away the mass of suffering of all those struck down by sickness and death. So energetic ones. So 
So let's uh, bring to heart and mind the goodness of our practice today. We've all been diligently practicing, staying with the retreat container, the silence, all sorts of stuff goes on inside that, you know, from here you all look kind of relatively peaceful and who knows what's going on inside. So to bring to heart and mind the goodness of your practice, the merits, and and also bring to mind that this lineage that we belong to, this is part of part of us, this is part of what's holding us and holding this retreat, this lineage that goes right back to the Buddha, the teachings, the practitioners, the insights over these generations and generations. Um, so bring all of that into your heart for a moment. I'd like to invite us all to share the merits, the good energy of our practice uh, for the benefit of everyone here and for the benefit of all beings. All beings in all situations, in all realms. May we all realize our true potential. May we all be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.